continues to love us. And even when we seem unlovable, his love for us does not wane or falter. That's a great assurance, and I pray that you're comforted in those words. So with that, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15. We're going to be looking at Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. I titled this Grace Alone, and I think that this is such an important topic because I'm going to suggest and maybe even argue that the doctrine or the teaching of salvation by grace alone, by grace alone is perhaps one of the hardest ideas for humans to grasp. The idea of grace alone is perhaps one of the hardest ideas for humans to grasp. In fact, um, it's interesting because the, the teaching, the biblical teaching of salvation by grace alone is both unique to the Christian faith and is also central to the Christian faith. Notice in my title, and I don't know if I did this in your notes, but grace and I, understood, and I underscored alone. This idea of grace alone has been challenged from the earliest days of the church, and it continues to be challenged today. There are ongoing attempts constantly to add human merit to grace, which is why I underlined and bolden alone, because there are many people who you can talk to, many churches, many religious organizations, and um, groups that you, if you were to say that I believe we are saved by grace, they will agree with you 100%. Yes, I agree. We're saved by grace. But if you push and say, are we saved by grace alone? Well, that raises a different question. For instance, the LDS church will say that we're saved by grace after all we can do. I think the Catholic Church would probably um, go along with that. People might say that we're saved um, uh, as long as you're baptized or you're saved, and, but you need to experience some sort of ecstatic experience or they'll add some sort of thing that, yes, we're saved by grace, but... We are saved by grace alone. So as we come to this chapter where that truth will be um, hammered out and nailed down and, and made clear, um, let me give you a little preview of uh, where some of the big themes that I hope to cover today. Um, the big themes really surround a church council. It's the very first ecumenical church council in the history of the church. There have been numerous church councils that have come together to clarify what the church believes. This is the first one. And what they're going to hammer out or reveal or support is this idea of what is necessary for salvation. Because there seemed to be some confusion on what basis is a person saved. I mean, that's a really important question. How do I stand before a holy God? That's a great question. How do I stand before a holy God? Well, the church has been teaching grace alone, but some people had come in and said, well, no, it's not really by grace alone. There's some other things you need to do. And confusion broke out. And so they called a church council to identify and clarify exactly what we mean. So that's going to be the bulk of our message today. But then a very, very interesting thing happens at the end of this church council. A letter goes out, 
and it's, it's a little confusing, um, but I hope to clarify it. But really what it is is, um, after all of this theological discussion, James, who I'll introduce to you in a little bit, um, James um, wants to make certain that culturally diverse people, Jews and Gentiles who have completely different cultures, can gather around the same table um, and have fellowship together. So there's this big theological discussion, and then at the end it's like, listen, I want you to be able to eat at the same family table together. Working out that theology. So there's a theology which is important, and we have to have that, but then it has to get worked out in the way we live our lives. And so James makes certain that these cultural differences are not a cause of separation. So how do we become family? So the first question is, how do we become family members? What is necessary for salvation? The second big issue is then, how does a family act when it's gathered together? I think that's a, those are two really good questions. How do we become family? And then how do we act now that we're family? That's kind of the bulk of James or Acts chapter 15. That's where I'm going to go. There's some other really important issues. I don't know how much time I'll spend on them, but pay attention and you might pick up some things. We're going to see kind of what is the nature of the church. As many of you know, that's probably my favorite subject. So what is the nature of the church? We'll spend a little bit of time with that. And then another thing that we're going to see is how do the early church leaders understand scripture? Pay attention for that. We Again, we'll, we'll look at what is the nature of the church? How do early church leaders understand Scripture? So those are, that's kind of where we're going to go. Those are our two big issues. Um, there's going to be some other things that we'll throw in as we go along. Are you with me? All right, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 25. I'm going to read the, te- or 1 through 21. I'll read the text and then we'll go through and um, uh, draw out our, the author's intent. Listen to God's inerrant word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every, every Sabbath in the synagogue. Father, we pray that the reading and the hearing of your word, Lord God, um, transforms us and that we are changed by it, Lord God. Let us take your word to heart and let us seek to understand it. So have mercy on us this day. Open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds, Lord God, to understand and live out what's all that you have commanded. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you can see uh, very clearly, um, you don't need an eloquent teacher to, to see what the crisis is. The crisis is very simple. The issue is very clear. Some people came down from Jerusalem, or came down to Antioch, and they began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I think we see the importance of, of this claim because Luke repeats it twice in five verses. He makes sure that we understand this is the crisis. Some people have come down to Antioch, and I didn't put a map up on the screen, but Antioch is kind of way north of Israel, but they probably came down from Jerusalem. Remember, you always go down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up on a hill, so whenever they go down, they go down um, out of Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. So some people, and it's interesting that Luke doesn't call them brothers. He says some men came and taught the brothers. I think that's kind of an, uh, an interesting thing. I don't, I don't think Luke is considering these people believers. Why? Because they're teaching a different gospel, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. So, um, so unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Now, let me just reemphasize uh, something that we've talked about a lot when we've gone through the book of Acts, and that is that Gentiles have always, have always been included in the covenant community. Gentiles have always been included in the covenant community of Israel. They had always been incorporated into the nation of Israel. In fact, um, we brought up probably one of the most famous people in all of the Bible, Ruth was a Gentile who was incorporated into the covenant community. And of course, I bring up Ruth because she's a great, great representative of a Gentile brought in to um, the, the, the covenant community. And, and also then to plug the fact that we do have a Bible study on fr every other Friday night and Sandra's teaching the book of Ruth. So you see how I kind of work that in there. And, um, but uh, we would welcome you to come and you can talk to Sandra right now. She's in the back, but... Um, um, talk to Sandra, or talk to really uh, my wife or myself, and we'll tell you about that. Anyways, um, Gentiles have always been incorporated in the uh, covenant community. So why is it now a problem? Why is it now that um, 
people are starting to come and say, wait a second. What about these Gentiles? These Gentiles need to be saved and they need to follow the laws of Moses. Why is this happening at this juncture? Well, a couple of things we should note. One of the things that we should note is that at this point in church history, Gentile conversion is outpacing Jewish conversion. In other words, there are more Gentiles coming into the church than Jews. That wasn't always the case because the the Christian church started in Jerusalem and it began to spread out into Judea and Samaria. But now we've noticed, especially with the, the, the missionary work of Paul and Barnabas, that the gospel is going into um, Gentile into the nations and Gentile converts are outpacing um, Jewish converts. And so the question then is, what do we do with them? When it was just one or two people, it didn't, wasn't that big of an issue. But now there's a bunch. What do we do with them? They're coming into the church. They're coming into our church. What do we do with these people? Well, the answer for many is what we do with them is what we've always done. We incorporate them and we... Um, have them observe the laws of Moses. That's how a, a, a Gentile always converted. A Gentile would come, um, somebody, a non-Jewish person who wanted to follow Yahweh would come and um, they'd say, fine, you can convert to Judaism and here's how you do it. Here's the law of Moses. You need to um, observe these external markers, circumcision, dietary laws, Um, holy days, those types of things. Observe those external markers and you're in. I mean, there's a little more than that, but that's basically it. So now you have Jewish people saying, we're seeing Gentiles convert to the Christian faith. How do they get included into the covenant community? The same way they always have. And that is they need to observe these external markers. Then they can become Christians. So you can see now there's this conflict because... Paul and Barnabas and many others are going to say, oh, no. In fact, the way Luke records this, he says there was no small dissension and debate. That's just another way of saying this was a big ruckus. Some guys came down and said, you need to follow the laws of Moses. Then you can become a Christian. And no small dissension, a big ruckus took place. I don't know what this dissension looked like, but I'm sure it was passionate. Read Galatians. And you will see it was probably a very passionate um, debate. Paul and Barnabas and the church at Antioch on one side and these others saying you must be circumcised to be saved um, on the other side. Folks, I want you to understand something. This debate um, is a primary matter. It is not about whether or not we can have shrimp scampi for, for lunch this afternoon or for dinner. This is about salvation. How am I saved? Who is saved? This is a big issue. My, my point with this is there are some things worth fighting over. I know that we're in church and we're supposed to say, well, we all should be in unity and love one another. And I just got done talking about unity. There are some things we fight over. The doctrine of salvation, we will divide over. The doctrine and the teaching of salvation by grace through faith alone, by grace alone through faith alone on the merits of Christ alone, That's a primary issue. And we will not budge. We'll budge on a lot of different things and a lot of us have various views on a variety of different things and we love one another, care for one another, and we agree to disagree. And we have table fellowship with one another and it's great. And there are some things that we will go to the mat for. 
How a person is saved is one of those things that we will go to the mat for. Paul and Barnabas do. The question is this. Is the work of Christ sufficient to save? Is the work of Christ sufficient to save? Or do you need something else? Do you, do you need to be baptized? Do you need good works? Do you need something else added to the work of Christ in order for you to be saved? That's the question. Paul, by the way, sees faith plus anything else as another gospel and that it does not save. Again, read Galatians 1 and 2. or read the whole book of Galatians. Um, but you will see Paul adamant. Faith plus does not save. Faith alone saves. And so this is, this is the debate. This is where we're going. All right. So, there's no small dissension, no small debate, basically a big ruckus um, um, and a passionate debate about this. The solution was, you know what? It's not going to get resolved here in Antioch. Here's what we need to do. We need to take this issue to the church, to the entire church. And we need to take it down to the apostles. The apostles, most of them at this point, I, I don't know where the, all of them are, but Peter and some of the other apostles are in Jerusalem. We need to go up to Jerusalem and take this debate so pack up your bags, road trip. And off they go. And it's interesting, I like how, how Luke points out very clearly how as they were going down that Paul and Barnabas stopped along the churches uh, and visited churches in Phoenicia and Samaria and c- encouraged them and there was great joy. So as Paul and Barnabas are going down to this very, very uh, um, important meeting, they're encouraging the people, of, they're encouraging brothers and sisters in the Lord Um, And there's great rejoicing. So here's a quick summary of of where we have been. The question is, how is a person saved? And there's two basic groups. There are two groups. The first group is keep the external markers of the Jewish faith. That's how you're saved. If you keep the external markers of the Jewish faith, then Christ will be of benefit to you. The second group is Christ's work alone is sufficient to save. There's our debate. All right. Very simple. Two sides. All right, so the solution then is this church council in, um, in Jerusalem. And um, it says in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together uh, to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, I'd love to have been in there. I'd love to have been a bystander. I wonder what they were talking about. I'm sure it was uh, at times heated. Um, certainly uh, a healthy debate. So one of the things you see here is all sides are represented. We're not saying, well, we don't want you to be part of this debate. We want to hear what you have to say. Everybody's debating. And after there had been much debate, Peter stands up. And we're going to see Luke records three testimonies. And we're going to look at each of those testimonies. But right now, we want to look at Peter's testimony because Peter stands up and he begins to speak and he begins to put forth his understanding of salvation. And remember, he kind of knew Jesus pretty well. And uh, so what Peter does is he takes us back to his meeting with Cornelius. I'm not going to go back there, um, but you, you can look this up. He takes us back to his meeting with Cornelius. And really, in the time frame of things, this is like 10 or 15 years ago from the time of this Jerusalem council. All right. So he says, now, listen, you guys, brothers, you know that in the early days, way back 10 or 15 years ago, 
God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of God. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, brothers, you remember a long time ago, God chose me to present the gospel to the Gentiles. You remember that. And, and you know this because I made a full report to you. Go back to Acts chapter 11 and you will see after the, the meeting with Cornelius and his household, Peter comes. It's really interesting. And I'm going to let me just read this because I think this is fascinating. Um, so Peter comes and, and conversion uh, happens. The, the Gentiles receive the gospel and they're saved. And now he makes a report to the church. So he sees that he's accountable to the church. And he says, um, um, now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. This is chapter 11, verse 1. So Peter went up to Jerusalem and the circumcised party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then Peter began to explain what happened. And at the end of the chapter... Basically, it says, when they heard these things, that is the circumcised party, the people who are criticizing Peter, when they heard Peter's testimony about how the gospel came to the Gentiles, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So there's this big shift. All right. First, Peter, what are you doing? You can't do that. Peter explains, this is what happened. They're going, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, Gentiles are... Are, are part of the, the body of Christ. And so, um, and so Peter's saying, you remember that. Remember way back in the beginning, God chose me to be a mouthpiece to the Gentiles that they would come to know the Lord. And then he says, and God who knows the heart. I think that's interesting because um, he points out the heart. I, I won't make much of this. This is just kind of my understanding. Because this other group is, parting, is pointing to external markers of the Jewish faith and Peter is saying, listen, God is looking on the heart. He's not looking on the external markers. He's looking at the heart. And so God, who knows the heart, poured out the Holy Spirit on them. In other words, what Peter is saying is God grants his Holy Spirit to, to those whom he's accepted. And since Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, God has accepted them. A great cross-reference here is, you'll recall in Second Chronicles chapter 7, um, when Solomon had built the temple and then he dedicated the temple and he began to pray, do you remember what happened at the end of his prayer? At the dedication of the temple, the Spirit of God came and filled the temple so that the priest couldn't even enter. I've always thought that would be cool. Like we couldn't even get into church one day at that church out there. But the Holy Spirit came, and what, what's going on here? In that, that Second Chronicles passage, what God is indicating is that I have accepted this temple, and I've received your offering. It is acceptable to me. Now we don't have a physical temple, but rather God fills his people with his Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is God's way of indicating, yes, you are accepted. I have received the sacrifice is Christ. And now I fill you. You are my temple. I fill you. You are accepted. And this is where Peter is going. He's saying, listen, they received the Holy Spirit just as we did. They, the Gentiles, have received the Holy Spirit just as we Jews did. There's no difference between them and us. 
They didn't have to earn the Holy Spirit. They didn't have to become circumcised. They didn't even have to become baptized. None of those things. They got the Holy Spirit when I, was, I hadn't even finished preaching. And the Spirit of God came upon them, indicating that God has accepted the Gentiles based on faith. God cleansed their hearts by faith, is what Peter says. So in other words, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile regarding acceptance by God. Both Jew and Gentile are accepted by God in the same way. And then Peter goes on. He says, so how can you demand more? If God has accepted them, then you who are opposing them, how can you demand more than God has demanded? That would be putting God to the test, Peter says. And so while you may cherish God's law, you have to remember, you, of the circumcised party, haven't even been able to keep God's law yourself. So if you can't keep God's law, why are you putting that burden on Gentiles? That doesn't make any sense. So Peter's saying, listen, I went to the Gentiles. I proclaimed the gospel to them. God received them by faith. And so if God doesn't place any greater demand on them, neither should we. And especially when we can't keep the very law we're saying they need to keep. That just doesn't make any sense. So this is uh, um, Peter's rationale. And then he concludes his speech with a creed. And this creed, we know it's a creed because it begins with these words, we believe. Verse 11, but we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So there's Peter's testimony. Listen, there's debate. What are we going to do? Peter stands up and says, listen, the Gentiles received, received Christ and salvation through, um, he gave them faith and it's by God's grace alone. And so therefore, this is what we believe. Are you with me so far? That makes sense? So that's Peter's testimony. It's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good argument. Well, then we get to the second testimony, and it's Paul and Barnabas. And really, they don't say much, or at least Luke doesn't record much. They just get up, and they talk about, well, listen, when we've been out um, doing missionary work amongst the Gentiles, God has accepted them, and we know that God has accepted them because he's done signs and wonders and miracles amongst them. So God has accepted Gentiles, and we know that because God has done miracles in their midst. So God has confirmed our message. Remember, one of the reasons why God does miracles and performs miracles is to confirm the testimony. And they're saying, listen, we proclaim the gospel to them. God has done miracles. It confirms that the testimony we spoke to them is true. God has accepted them. So that's their testimony. And I won't spend much time there because Luke doesn't. So there we have two testimonies. And now comes James. And James's testimony, okay, so if you're kind of napping, wake up right now. Um, I'm gonna ha- this gets really, really important. Um, if your eyes are getting heavy, now's the time. I want you to listen. Because this is um, a little technical. But if I can communicate it well, I think you're going to be blessed. So the goal is for me then, you can pray that I will be able to communicate um, these things because it's, it's really awesome. So James now. James is the brother of the Lord. All right. So James isn't one of the uh, first, isn't even an apostle. I think he's probably the, at this point, probably the, the head of the Jerusalem church, but he's the brother of the Lord. And this is what James says. Brothers, listen to me. 
Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. So, so Simeon's our Simon has already, Peter has already said how God first visited the Gentiles back with Cornelius. So he's related that story. James is going to affirm Simon or Peter's testimony. So he, how he, God's first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And I need to stop. Well, no, I'm not going to stop preaching, but I need to pause for just a moment and consider this very, very important statement that God took from the Gentiles a people for his name. This is, uh, James is a good Jew. And and Peter was a good Jewish man. And this word people, laos in the Greek, um, is the Greek word for name. Now, here's what I want you to understand. God takes from the Gentile a laos. I'm sorry, a laos. Got my vowels mixed up there. A laos. Um, This was a term used to refer to Israel as the people of God. And it was often used in contrast to Gentiles as the nation. So oftentimes we'll see in the Old Testament that the people of God are the, the laos of God in contrast to the nations, the Gentiles. We have the people of God and we have the nations. And here, what, what James is saying is that God has taken from the Gentiles a laos for his own name. Wow, this is awesome. James has used the word laos to describe Gentiles. And this was a name or a term generally or usually applied to the people of Israel. So in Christ, God brings Jew and Gentile together into a single people for his name, a single laos for his name. So, yeah, I agree with you, Simeon, because I remember how, what happened there. But, and God has chosen from the Gentiles and made them a people for his own name. This is awesome. See, Jews had always understood that salvation would reach the Gentiles. That's what's not new. They always knew that the, that the salvation would reach the Gentile, but they always assumed that the inclusion of Gentiles would be through the nation of Israel. They never thought that the people of God would comprise both Jew and Gentile and not be distinctly Jewish, or at least not externally Jewish. And, and James is saying, and remember, James is a, is a good Jewish boy man, probably. And he's saying, listen, from the Gentiles, God has chosen a laos for his own name. All right. So that's his first thing. One people. One people. And then we look at this, what I'm going to just call the, de- the decree of God. What, um, because what seems very new to probably some of the people in that, this particular um, church council was not new to God. So for the first time, some of these Jewish men and probably just men were hearing that God has chosen among the Gentiles um, a people, a laos for his own name. This may be the first time they're kind of hearing this, but this is not new to God. In fact, James then goes and says, listen, what I'm telling you isn't new. This is something that God has been declaring from, for a long time ago. And so I'm not just making this up. This isn't some recent 
thing that God just decided to do on the spur of the moment. This is something that God has been planning to do from eternity past. And then he goes in and he says, so while this is not new to, while this may be new news to the Jews, it was not new to God who declared this truth not long ago. And James now refers his audience back to a, the prophets, to Amos chapter 9. And I'm not going to go there um, and spend a lot of time. I'm just going to give you a, a, a brief summary of this. He could have gone to a lot of passages of text, but he goes to Amos chapter 9. So remember, James is supporting Peter's uh, testimony. He's supporting Paul and Barnes' claim on Scripture. And now he's taking Amos chapter 9 and he's using it to show that Gentiles are included as the people of God. And basically it says, after this, and in the time of Amos, this was after the destruction of the northern kingdom, um, I will rebuild. So after all of this destruction, I'm going to rebuild the tent of David. I'm going to rebuild the Davidic dynasty. I'm going to fulfill my promises to David. That's what he's saying. All right? So he's, um, God is going to restore that Davidic dynasty, and then notice, with the goal being that others would seek the Lord. So here's what God's saying. Listen, I'm going to restore the Davidic dynasty, and the goal is that Gentiles are going to seek the Lord. That's, my, that's the plan. I'm not... I hope not... We're getting this. So there's going to come a time that I'm going to restore the Davidic dynasty. And when I do that, God says, Gentiles are going to seek the Lord. All right. That's the Amos 9 in a nutshell, or the reference that he's talking about. So God is going to restore the Davidic dynasty. And the goal is that others are going to seek the Lord. And I want you to understand something. Peter and Paul, and now James, and I'll get to James, both Peter and Paul have clearly stated that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promises. And I'll refer you back to um, Peter in Acts chapter 2, 29 through 36. I'm not going to um, read all of that, but... Um, where Peter is talking on the day of Pentecost and he says, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that, um, that the Davidic, that the promises of David have now been fulfilled. This Jesus God has raised up, because remember the, the, the word was that um, <clears throat> you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. Um, Peter says that's talking about Jesus. It's not talking about David because David's dead and gone. We've got his bones over here. We've seen the decay. It's talking about Christ who's never been de seen decay. So Christ is the fulfillment of those Davidic promises. This Jesus God raised up and that we're all witnesses. And he's been exalted to the right hand of God and he's received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So here it is. Let all the house of Israel Therefore, know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Basically, Peter is saying that in Christ, all of those promises made to David have been fulfilled. And then Paul says the exact same thing in, in um, Acts chapter 13. Um, 
32 through 34, Paul says uh, the same thing. Um, And we bring you good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, just as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Who's the, who is God going to give the holy and sure promises of David? To Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Um, so Paul goes on and says, all of the promises of David have been fulfilled in Christ. Now, I told you this might get a little, my, my prayer is that I can make this somewhat clear. Am I kind of clear? Kind of, you're nodding your head. Maybe. Here's my point. James is saying, I'm going to use scripture to, to back up my claim. God has said, that there will come a time that I'm going to fulfill my Davidic promises. Peter and, Peter and Paul both say those promises have been fulfilled in Christ. This is now what James is saying. James is saying, listen, those promises are fulfilled in Christ. And why would he fulfill those promises? So that the nations would seek God. Here's what's going on to these people at this Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. They are living in the days of prophetic fulfillment. They are living in the days when the prophecies of Amos are being fulfilled in their midst. What an awesome thought that is. He's saying, this isn't something for the far distant future. You are living in seeing God's fulfillment of his word right here, right now, today. He's fulfilled his promises in David so that the Gentiles would seek the Lord. That's exactly what's happening. So, the restoration of of the throne of, to David's son and the inclusion of Gentiles converge in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. The restoration of the throne to David's son and the inclusion of the Gentiles converge in the person of Jesus Christ. Folks, let me just give you a, a reminder of, uh, of how James and Peter and, and Paul, and we're going to see a lot of others, understand Old Testament scripture. It's the same way that we try to understand it here. Same way Jesus taught us. I'm the fulfillment of everything. All of the scriptures point to me. All of them point to me. You search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life. Don't you know they speak of me? And he took the disciples from the law to the writings and and to the prophets and he showed them that he is at the center of all of scripture. So when we interpret Scripture, especially Old Testament stuff, we understand that Christ is the center of that. That's our interpretive guide. That's our go-to point. That's what James is doing. He's saying, listen, all that's fulfilled in Christ. That's what Paul did. That's what Peter did. All of this is fulfilled in Christ. He's the center of history. He's the center of Scripture. So, let me run off on a rabbit trail real quick. Please do not make the scripture about you. Don't go searching the scripture trying to find yourself in them. Well, unless you go to Romans 3 where it says, you know, all of us like sheep have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not even one, that we're all have, you know, wicked in our hearts. You can find yourself there.
But we don't go to the Scripture seeking to find ourselves. We go to the Scripture and we, and we find Christ. He's the central theme. He is the central figure of all of Scripture because He says so. All right. So, a quick summary. At the Jerusalem Council, basically, the conclusion is this, that you are saved by grace. It is evident by the Scriptures. James has given us Scripture to back up that claim. And also by God's signs of approval and acceptance. So we have Scripture that backs it up, and we have God indicating that He has accepted Gentiles by faith and not by becoming um, Jews first. So, one people of God... Um, this was always the plan of God. By the way, this also fulfills the promise to Abram that we read earlier. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so, once again, we're seeing all of the nations, not just a particular nation, but all of the nations are blessed in Christ, in the seed of Abraham. All right. So, I hope I was clear on that. Let me um, look at this very last section of this passage of text. And um, this can be a, a little bit challenging. So um, I'll do my best with it to, uh, to draw out what the author is meaning. Um, so James has stated his case. And there, then in verse 19, he says, Therefore, my judgment, this is James speaking, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles to turn to God, who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which has been strangled and from blood and from ancient generations. Moses has been read in every city, those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Let me just kind of condense this. First of all, let me tell you what James is not saying. This will help us. What James is not saying is um, you're sa- follow these rules and you'll be saved. He can't be saying that because he just got done saying you're not saved by following these rules. You're saved by, by grace through faith. He's affirming with Peter and with Paul and Barnabas. So he's not saying, now do these things for your salvation. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is having established that the scriptures include Gentiles in the people of God and that all come into union with Christ by grace through faith, James now draws on requirements for how Gentiles are going to love their Jewish brethren. In other words, since Gentiles are now part of the family and they have a completely different culture than us Jews, how do we get along? How do we sit at the same table and eat? Because they do things different than we do. See, now James is trying to So how does a family live together in love? Because, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced other cultures. Sometimes they're just odd. People of other cultures do things differently. They eat different food. They they celebrate different things. Um, They have different priorities. And now we have these two cultures that have been antagonistic towards one another. Gentiles, um, or Jews, hated Gentiles. Right? Charlie taught us that um, the rabbis would teach that Gentiles are created simply to fuel the fires of hell. That's their view. Well, then that didn't go over very well with Gentiles. They didn't say, oh, well, we love you guys. No, you're a bunch of arrogant, stuck-up hypocrites. And we don't want to have anything to do with a bunch of arrogant, stuck-up hypocrites, you elitists. 
So we have these two groups that really don't like each other. And James is saying, but yeah, you're all one family. And you're all going to sit around the same table. And James is now saying, here's how that's going to work. (laughs) So theology is really important. But sometimes now, how to live out that theology... That's a challenge. This is where James is going. And so, so he's saying, listen, you, you Jews, don't put undue burdens on your Gentile brothers for salvation. Don't burden, um, don't burden your Gentile brothers with burdens that you yourself can't keep. Don't do that. All right? Um, so don't burden them with the law and circumcision. They're saved by grace through faith. Christ alone is sufficient for their salvation. Don't start putting undue requirements on them for their salvation. So you Jews, that's your responsibility to your Gentile brothers and sisters. And so Gentiles are like, woohoo! Now you Gentiles, I got something to say to you as well. All right? So how... What I want you Gentiles to do is I want you to respect the conscience of your Jewish brothers and sisters. Because, see, you guys have weird eating habits. And now, they're not just weird eating habits to your Jewish brethren. They're offensive. They're offensive. So here's what I want you to do. And also, you, you have some, some really lax moral values as well. So here's what I want you you Gentiles do, when you're all together, listen, don't offend your Jewish brethren because they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love them. And don't eat and do those things that are going to cause them to, uh, to despise you and to profane the name of Christ. So, James is not adding a law to the salvation. He's simply saying, now that we're all family... This is what we need to do to get along. Jews, don't put undue burdens on your Gentile brothers and sisters and Gentiles. Don't end up doing things that are icky and nasty to your Jewish brothers. And not just icky and nasty, that are offensive and will be a stumbling block to them. And it would cause them to profane the name of Christ. We don't want that. We want you all to get along. So, so the blood thing, listen, eat kosher when you're with your brothers and sisters and your Jewish brothers and sisters. You can handle a kosher meal. Love your brothers, love your sisters. Jews, love your brothers, love your sisters. Folks, as we gather together, um, and we're all from different places. We're all from different places. We're all from different cultures. We all are one in Christ. But we probably all have different backgrounds. Um, and, you know, some of those things, we've got to learn to love one another. And just, you know, maybe we eat different foods. And it's, it's interesting when I go down and talk to big city people down in the valley and we were down there. My sister was in town and we were down there a lot. And um, sometimes the look on their face when I tell them about our potlucks. I don't want to scare anybody away from our potlucks, which is next week. Every, every third Sunday. And I, don't want, I want you to come. Um, but we have some interesting food because we have a lot of hunters. Right? So elk chili won't be unheard of. You can ask. Uh, rabbit stew? Wild turkey? You know, freshly? 
God, we might have that. I mean, we'll have the other stuff too. I mean, we'll have, you know, barbecue pork and all, that, all the good stuff and hamburgers and things like that. But they look at me like, oh my goodness. What kind of hillbillies are you? And then I tell them, we're the kind of hillbillies that we... Well, I don't want to... You'd be surprised... How well armed our community is. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. And they're going, y'all eat rabbits and carry guns. <laughs> I don't know if I want to come to that church. I'm saying if you're our brother and sister, we want you to come to our church. And we won't talk about them firearms and we won't tell you that there's rabbit in your stew. Serve you a salad or whatever you want. But we all have different cultures and we do different things and we come from different backgrounds and, and the way I was raised is different than the way you were raised. And you know what? Um, James is saying, this is how you love one another. If you know something's going to bother them, just love your brother and sister. Paul then picks this up, of course, in, in 1 Corinthians and, he t- and in Romans as well. So I won't belabor that. So... Um, Basically, James is saying, listen, we're all brothers and sisters. I don't want you to divide over some things. There are some things worthy divide, uh, worth dividing over. Things like salvation. That's worth dividing over. Um, don't divide over what you eat. And listen, if your morals are lax, um, you need to get that right. So those are just some of the, that's kind of where, where we've gone. So I'll conclude with this. I've, I've rambled enough. I'll conclude with this. There have been two big issues. Our two big issues is that people are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Grace alone through faith alone and, the, and the, on the merits of Christ alone. That is distilled at the Council of Jerusalem. I don't want you to think that that's new, that the Council of Jerusalem just made that up. They are just refining and distilling what the church had always taught. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then finally, because we're saved and our commonality may not be our culture and our, the way we're raised, but we do have a common thing, that is the resurrected Christ, based on the fact that we're family, by the resurrected Christ, love one another. Love one another. Yeah, even the one who eats weird stuff. Love that one. Um, if you will, let's uh, we'll close.